The Late Debate with Katie Hannan on RTE Radio 1. Vaccines. Will a creaking appointment system be able for half a million 5 to 11-year-olds? Laggard or leader, Climate Council of Ireland lashes the government. And will the review of abortion legislation go far enough? We'll have all that and more on tonight's Late Debate. And joining us tonight to debate all of that, we have Senator Ashling Dolan of Fine Gael, Shannon Spokesperson on Education, Science and Innovation, Louise O'Reilly, Sinn Féin TD for Dublin Finn Gaul and Spokesperson on Trade and Enterprise, Independent Senator Alice Mary Higgins and from the Fourth Estate, Harry McGee, Political Correspondent with the Irish Times. We want to hear from you as well, so do please get in touch. Text us on 51551, email us on latedebate at rte.ie or tweet to at latedebate.rte. Now, as you heard there in the bulletin, the National Immunisation Advisory Committee has recommended that COVID-19 vaccinations be offered to children aged 5 to 11 years. Or as Minister Catherine Martin told the news at one today, the HSE will work with urgency to operationalise the rollout of COVID-19 vaccines for children aged 5 to 11 years. We're going to put a bounty on the head of the next person who says the word operationalise. <laughs> Here on the debate, <laughs> yeah, um, but uh, anyway, the Taoiseach has said it will be uh, that he'll be back to us within a number of days with a plan to vaccinate the four hundred eighty thousand primary school children. Um, can I go to you first, Ashling, and say, are you comfortable? Are we? Are you absolutely comfortable with the idea of vaccinating children against a disease? that poses such a low risk uh, to them when it poses such a low risk? Like I can understand that there is anxiety, but, you know, the European Medicines Agency has conducted clinical trials already on that age group between 5 and 11. Um, There's been over 90% efficacy in that and they've also done it. And I suppose with this particular vaccine from Pfizer, what they're going to do is it's 10 milligrams instead of 30. So it's a lower dose. And I suppose what we're looking at here is the the challenges, like if you're going to have children that are going to be coming out um, with potentially the long-term impacts, if they do get COVID, we still don't know the full impacts of that. But by this, you're protecting your family, your loved ones, and we're also going to be able to keep our schools open. I mean, we're seeing challenges in that particular age cohort at the moment. Uh, Louise, I mean, we are effectively asking children to take one for the team, really, aren't we? Well, I think when we look at the the rates of infection and, and we look at the fact that, you know, by the virtue of the fact that they didn't move in any way quickly on ventilation. And I mean HEPA filters, not uh, as members of government say, just open a few windows in the middle of a storm uh, or indeed in the middle of winter when the kids were freezing. So, I mean, <clears throat> very. I think a lot of opportunities in relation to children were missed. Huge numbers uh, of opportunities were missed. I think the fact that we now see one in 41, I think I saw, I saw a figure published earlier today. Yeah, the, one the, in 41 the statistics right in now are really staggering, actually. So last week we had 7,359 cases recorded in this 5 to 12 uh, year old age group. That's an increase of 21% compared to the previous week. And now, yeah, one, that's 21% of all cases are now children in that age group. And that is one in every 41 children has tested positive for COVID-19 in the last fortnight alone. And I mean, that is really a a testament to the fact that the the government were dragging their heels all of the time. I don't, I really don't think that's the case. If you just let me finish. If I can come in there, we've already, we've brought in mask wearing. We've brought in mask wearing. In relation to... There's mask wearing was brought in. That's been proven to reduce by 50%. In relation to ventilation and in relation to the use of HEPA filters in our schools. That wasn't done. So, I mean, we haven't really, they were very, very late on the advice around masking. We know that. Uh, again, they had the advice for five days. They gave 16 hours to, to children and parents to get ready. But, you know, just because the ball was dropped doesn't mean that they're not going to be able to get something right at some point. And I do think, you know, it is up to NIAC to decide who should get the vaccines, but it's up to the government to make sure that there is is a really well-resourced information campaign for parents and that parents not only have access to the vaccines for their kids, if that's yeah, what they but want, we... but they have access to yeah. up-to-date information. If they have questions, they need to have those questions and and they need to be able to access and that information And if I can come in quickly. there, Katie. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Ashling. I mean, questions are been answered.
monitored all the time. Our HSE services are out there on the front line. Every single stage that we've come along over the last year and eight months, there's been information about the vaccine, each stage of the vaccine. And I think for our children and for parents, it's very important that all parties support how we're going to keep people safe and loved ones, especially coming into Christmas. I would expect cross-party support for this initiative okay. to Do you to not accept though what Louise O'Reilly was saying there, that there have been mistakes made in relation to the management of COVID and children and particularly in this age group? In this age group, we've literally brought in mask wearing. I know Minister Stephen Donnelly over two weeks ago literally indicated that it reduced over <laughs> 50% the other day, of the incidents. <laughs> mask wearing. Yeah. That, is that it? Yeah. Is, that, is, that, is that the no, great management of COVID? No. We were told, Apart from every mask parent wearing, in the country was yeah. told for weeks and weeks and then it turned into mm. months. Don't worry. But Don't seeing, worry, this is a magic place for your children to be. Yeah. They will not get COVID from but, each other in schools. And now all the statistics seen, back up that yeah, they did. We, so we just need to ensure that lessons yeah. are learned. They recognise, they, they dropped the ball. And look what they did. That's but not the that case. Doesn't mean the, that literally, not the vaccines okay, have been brought in as soon as possible. Once the EMA has been able to like acknowledge and recognise that we're able to roll out these vaccines to the age groups from five to 11, that has been yeah. done. And, one and it's going to be implemented now as soon as possible. Okay, So Alice Mary Higgins. So first of all, I do think it's good that the vaccines are rolled out. It's important that it's going to be done, you know, it's happening in winter, that it's done in a way which makes it as accessible as possible for families. We know already families who had children, for example, lone parents trying to access their own vaccination had difficulties. So it's going to be important in terms of how it's done. But vaccines and masks, I think, do give a degree of confidence to children because children are not immune to watching the news about COVID. And I actually know that when mask wearing came in, that a lot of children felt safer because they had something they could control to make themselves safer. But mask wearing was called for months ago. Ventilation was being called for as an absolute priority going into the summer. And the fact is that there has been a dragging of heels on the tools we did have before vaccines. Antigen tests, when I was in Scotland for COP, every teacher was doing an antigen test on Monday and on Friday. So antigen tests, masks, better ventilation and frankly, trying to tell us that 90 million is a lot to create safe environments for our children is really, I think, uh, unfortunate as a kind of... To tr- and I think that has to be a priority. We need safer schools as well as vaccinated children going into next year. OK, I yeah. want to bring Harry in on this. Uh, Harry, what, just in relation to this school uh, rollout uh, of the vaccination for this age cohort, will it be done through schools or had any indication yet about how this is going to be managed? Because it's obviously a huge... Uh, you know, uh, operation that will 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 have to be uh, you know started from scratch now. Well, thank you for operationalising me, uh, Katie. <laughs> um, I, I don't think they've fully worked out the uh, the details yet as to how it's going to be done, but I think they'll have to do it a little bit differently uh, than they've been administering the booster uh, vaccine. Uh, for COVID. I think these statistics have shocked people because the uptake for the original vaccines was so good and people were surprised to find out that only 93,000 people had uh, turned up for boosters last week when over almost twice that had been invited. So there are but, difficulties, I think, with but, logistics. But, sorry, but isn't the, the, the what we're hearing really in the last couple of days and certainly any uh, anecdotal evidence uh, you're hearing from people is that there's also that, that loads of people are getting their, their boosters from GPs, from pharmacists, people who maybe have contracted and are not eligible for boosters are getting appointments. That a lot of these appointments are unnecessary appointments and that people don't have a means of cancelling them. Yes, and I, I think they're getting them from multiple sources and there's no coordination between the different sources. So I think for the initial uh, vaccination programme, uh, there was a committee that was chaired by Brian McCraw, which did an amazing job and that, 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 that it, it arranged for vaccines to be administered in a coherent and a logical and a systematic uh, way. And it worked ex- extraordinarily well. But that committee has since been disbanded. It's, it has finished its work. And I, I think, the, the as you said, I think there's been confusion in relation to how the booster uh, is to be administered. It's coming from multiple sources and there doesn't seem to be any connection or communication uh, between the different sources. I think that they will have to look uh, at that. So if they're doing it with children, I think the the, um, the logical place for, for uh, the vaccine to be administered amongst children is in schools, uh, as other vaccine programmes have been done, 
in, in the past. But I think that it would be quite difficult. I think in the first instance, we've seen it with masks, that there is some parental resistance in relation to masks. And I think there might also be some parental resistance in relation to the, to the administration of vaccines uh, to children who are that young. Now, I know we're not comparing like with like, but in the States, for example, uh, in September, uh, the Kaiser Family Foundation did a survey and they found out that only 26% of parents, or sorry, that 26% of parents would be resistant uh, to to a vaccine really? like that. They probably want, as Louise was saying, to be fully uh, uh, au fait with all the up-to-date and relevant information that okay. surrounds the, the vaccine. But it's important. Creda Butler was on uh, the 6-1 News earlier on yeah. and she was saying that even though uh, it's very rare that there are children with no underlying conditions who have become seriously ill uh, through COVID-19. Very rare, admittedly, uh, but even to prevent those rare instances, I think the vaccine is definitely worth it. I think, as we heard earlier, right from Professor Butler and a key paediatrician and chair of the NIA committee, that, you know, it is so crucial that, you know, we've seen the efficacy rate for this particular vaccine that's, that's actually dedicated I suppose, for the age group for 5 to 11. But we've also heard about it's been rolled out in the States for over 2 million uh, children with a very, very low adverse reaction on this. Um, So I think it's really crucial that we have a clear message to parents to give them the information that they need about the rollout of this particular vaccine in other cohorts and countries around the world. Yes, I I do. But I do wonder, though, has there been or will there be a bit of a mountain to climb here? Because Mm. maybe for good reason, people were being assured over and over again Uh, particularly when the decisions were made around reopening schools, that children were not, you know, were at very low risk and that that this was not something we should be worried about. Of all the things we needed to worry about COVID, we didn't need to worry about our children. It's going to be kind of hard to turn that ship around now and actually, you know, ask people to worry enough to bring their children for a vaccine. I think that's why it's absolutely essential that they get the scheduling right. You know, and that they that they make sure that it is as smoothly run as possible. I mean, there are serious, serious problems at the moment with the HSE booking system. I have a relative who is not eligible for the booster, although she's in the age category, but she has uh, she has recently recovered from COVID-19. She's now being called four times for appointments that she can't cancel. Now, that's four times she has turned up for those appointments merely to say I'm not eligible. So she doesn't want to leave people waiting. So she's gone for her appointments. She's not eligible for the vaccine yet. That's and I know- People. That's Fair pleasure. Now, very few people would bother to do that. I no, would, I I would know. suggest. And to be so honest, I think that, you know that maybe uh, you, you don't know if this time is going to be the time because you know that some of the, some of the, the the timings have changed. But I think in order to instill confidence the system needs to run smoothly. There needs to be an acknowledgement that it is not running smoothly at the moment. Previously, it has done. So they all need to be talking to each other. If you get a a booster in a GP, if you get it in a pharmacy, that needs to be recorded centrally. And that will bring, give people the confidence to know that the system is working and parents the confidence Just on that point, we have an email in here. Read the booster vaccine. I got invited for a vaccine, but also got my vaccine at another site. Tried phoning to cancel the original appointment over three days and couldn't get anyone. That's from Colm. Oh yeah. Just to mention, I think the HSC are bringing in Swift Q, which is an Irish company in Kildare as well, to have them manage the appointment scheduling system as well. So I know this is something... Do we know what went wrong with this though? Because the original vaccination programme worked so brilliantly. I think anybody who, you know, it took worked, part in that were well. really, it, it was, really it, it impressed it was, it was by well run. How, exactly. how that worked. And the HSC, I think, are going to be dedicating more capacity to managing this as well. I is suppose. it because, do we know that? Because I know Catherine Murphy was asking mm. about this in the doll today. Is it because we have now got three IT systems, the GPs, the but We also have a lot of people who've been redeployed back to their own and original roles. So the, yeah, the yeah. system is running under capacity at the moment. And if it is going to be ramped up, that's going to require personnel. It's not going to require loads of government uh, spokespersons saying it's getting ramped up. It actually is going to need personnel and a, a proper IT system yeah. to back it up. That's essential. And, and I think one of the yeah. problems Alice is Mary. that personnel have been brought in, let go, brought in. And we saw that on vaccination, but we also saw it on on testing and tracing where, you know, capacity was going up and then capacity wasn't there. We, you know, we certainly saw in schools mm. there was a big failure on testing and tracing. Mm. And I do worry that a lot of boards of managers are just to say, yes, we need to get the vaccination programme in place properly over the break. 
But we do also need to support schools and we cannot leave it to boards of managements to try to manage it on their own. Um, even in, in, to put a, a word in for the other students, the higher education students who are, for example, being forced to go in for exams in crowded halls at the moment. When you well, leave no, it to I institution by institution. I would challenge that now. Uh, that's 40% capacity, I think, in a lot of the exam halls, particularly at third level. Yeah. Um, there's in-person continuous assessment and online. So but I it's think not an option for many. Offered. It's not an option in many yeah. because many universities the point is it's been left to each institution and similarly it mustn't be left to each school to decide how they're going to face into January. January needs to be used in terms of creating safe environments. Is there a danger now that we now are looking uh, in as much as this time last year we were looking at okay the vaccines are coming we don't need to do anything else we'll just get everyone vaccinated and you know that's going to be the sole focus of our government approach here that now the children we're now going to be vaccinated as well are we are now in danger of taking, you know, putting all our eggs back into that basket again? No, I think, look, vaccination is one tool. Face ma- or mask wearing, it's so crucial. Social distancing, um, all the measures that we've been doing in terms of public health, that has to be maintained. We know that there are multiple variants. Every two weeks it changes. We need to ensure, I suppose, that we're keeping up to date, that we have the best information possible, but that we're managing and rolling out like that vaccinations to our children so that they are protected against potential future variants that we may see from COVID. Okay. I want to just move on before I leave this to uh, that package, big aid package for entertainment and venues uh, that have been hit by restrictions announced by Catherine Martin today. Harry, were you watching that announcement? Uh, I wasn't. I was uh, otherwise engaged, but I was au fait with it. It's a lot. It's almost 50 million euro, uh, 34 million until the end of January and uh, 14 million extra for live entertainments between the months of February uh, or June. And I think that that some at a very minimum is is warranted, uh, given that they have borne the brunt of COVID restrictions and their hopes of reopening to full capacity were dashed uh, within weeks of it happening. And now they are expected to continue, uh, but uh, with 50 percent capacity. So something had to be done to ensure uh, that this sector uh, was uh, allowed um to survive uh, through this latest wave of COVID. But it begs the question, you know, when will it be normalised if Omicron turns out uh, to be worse than had been predicted? You know, it could be summertime or or even autumn uh, before we see those last sectors, such as entertainment, live entertainment, uh, coming back to some semblance of normality. Yeah, uh, Louise Yeah, well, that's what they want, Katie, isn't it? They want to be able to operate at full capacity and I think they want to, to hear from the government in particular and in particular Minister Catherine Martin. You know, she organised these pilot events back, I think it was well, a good few months ago now. Mm. Now, I mean, she definitely got some nice photographs out of it and, and a few old selfies, but I'm not sure that there was ever any follow-up yeah. done. So the problem with that is the, the arts and entertainment sector were invited by the minister to engage in pilot programmes they did so believing that there was going to be some follow up and then off the back of that information then they would be able to look at maybe mitigation measures but I know from talking to people in particularly working in the live entertainment sector they say they're willing to do anything they want They want to be able to open so if you're talking about a venue that has standing capacity and seated capacity if you're cutting that down to, to 50% and you're taking out the standing you're effectively cutting it down to 30 so we know that right so they want to be able to open and to run events as uh, with as much capacity as is possible but they also want to look at things like mitigation measures such as ventilation so if that's if they are going to go to the trouble of installing filters is that going to make any difference many have they've spent thousands just to keep themselves going in the hope that they would be able to operate at full capacity the and package is with everybody else yeah, now yeah now but the package is very welcome but i mean we do need to hear details about how it's going to be deployed, who's going to be able to get it and how is it going to work. So those that information hasn't been published yet. It does need to be as we head into what should be their busiest time. And remember, these are people who make their money in December and that sees them through January and into February, yeah. you know, and it's a very uncertain new year for so them and we, a very uncertain future. Yeah, it's if we look at the track done. record, I suppose, as you've mentioned there, Minister Martin, and what the packages have been rolled out throughout the year, but we've seen it across the country because there's been funding to local authorities to support 
support our musicians and our artists. I mean, I was very fortunate in the Slow to see the stunning playing in our own town hall. So that's been happening in many towns across the country. But this particular support is there because the government has recognised that this sector has been hugely impacted. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how hopefully in the new year that we're going to be in a safer place, that we'll be able to return to maximum capacity. But this hopefully is just a temporary measure. You think we could be back to maximum capacity in the new year? I would hope that we would be in a safer place. Uh, you know, when we see a rollout of the vaccination programme as we have been, when we're able to look at vaccination among the 5 to 11 year olds, when we're able to see the third uh, dose, the booster dose, we've already rolled out um, so much of that. If we can see that happening, I do believe hopefully that we will be in a safer place. Um, Alice Mary. Okay, so first, I, I think, yes, it's very good that there's a large package. I don't think anybody would question that this sector has been hit and needs that. There are concerns around, though, when that package arrives, because I know there's a lot of question of, is this about for the new year? But what about now, this really vital period to Christmas? And for example, there may be compensation if you're cancelling an event, but if you're bringing an event to 50% capacity, there's no longer any margin in that. You know, you really are almost just not disappointing your relationship with those who want to come and see you perform, but you're no longer making making anything. So, for example, you know, is it a situation where you have to cancel it rather than get the full amount, you know, or to get compensation rather than some recognition for these reduced capacity events? And also I've heard that a lot of musicians, because there's almost, there's the venues, there's the theatre companies, but there's also then the artists, the musicians and themselves. And many musicians, for example, who've been facing interrogation um, when they've gone to try to get the pop because many of them are now back in a situation of having to go back to the pub just before Christmas. Will they get the full 350 amount? So I think there's a lot that needs to be teased out there. Mm-hmm. And there is going to need to be capital investment in new and more creative uh, spaces that are safer, but also outdoor spaces, public spaces, because we've seen the erosion of arts and creative spaces across the country, which has been happening in parallel and even happening during the pandemic. But the last thing I do have to say, in terms of being a safer place and rolling out vaccination, until we stop blocking the EU and the UK, the COVID, uh, the TRIPS waiver, until we allow global manufacture and access to vaccines right across the world, we're not going to get to be in a safer place because it is a global pandemic. And at the moment, sadly, the EU Commission and the UK and a couple of other countries are standing in the way and they've been criticised very roundly by the United Nations, by the World Health Organisation, by UNAIDS and this. It's in part by 2.5 million nurses who signed a petition last week. 2.5 million nurses. We, know we need we, to do this and that is the only way that we will I'm, ultimately move past this and pandemic. And Alice Mary, I, took, I take totally on board those points and it is good for us, I suppose, to even point out that the European Union has been strong in here. It, is, it has exported roughly Wait, 750 sorry, I, I have to call on it because I've doses. heard this so many times. They are exporting doses because they will let no one else manufacture them. So to but claim the, that glory... But for exporting, but when in fact you are creating an artificial bottleneck, when you are creating an artificial bottleneck in terms of manufacturing by insisting that you will not allow manufacturing in the global south and then you give yourself a pat on the but back for exporting some of them, often at higher prices and at lesser conditions to many parts of the okay. developing world, the, the entire world knows that this is a travesty. And there is no defending it. And I say that not to to respond to you, but it really is just a fact. Okay, no defend it though. (laughs) If there is no defending it. Uh, Of course, because we're seeing, look, there are steps that have been taken, but you speak about like vaccine production as if tomorrow we can open up a vaccine production. This was called for, this was called for one year ago. It was called for again in March. It was called for again in June. There is extensive science. The Lancet, which is the premier world health uh, journal, they have all pointed out, yes, I'm not saying vaccination is simple. I'm saying it is complicated. It requires know-how. It requires the sharing of technology. The vaccine production not the regulatory requirements, the actual types of facilities that have to be built. I'm sorry, there's actually a little bit of a kind of, you can't do this. We've created new facilities in Europe there's no reason. Well, and they've been actually over a hundred existing facilities. There have been over 180 manufacturing capacities created in the South okay. that could be producing that are not allowed because they are not given that licence. Okay, Ashley, are you suggesting sure. or is it is it being suggested that the reason that we are standing and, you know, standing against a TRIPS waiver 
is because we don't trust the... Uh, no, I suppose what I'm saying here is that when it comes to... Developing countries to, ma- to manufacture, to actually be able to follow the... No, I think one of the challenges we have here is that what we're seeing is ramping up of production in existing facilities because there is there is such a requirement, particularly around the regulatory, when it comes to producing vaccines, that it does take time. What we've been trying and what we've seen here, even in the likes Sorry, of Galway, for example... T- I'm just not following you. What takes time? But say, for example, if you're looking at developing a manufacturing facility for vaccines, the regulatory nature of the equipment and everything else that would need to be used in that particular facility will... You know, surely the starting takes, point is the TRIPS wa- waiver. I mean, what, you, you can't yeah. do anything unless you have the intellectual property to develop that vaccine. To go so, further. So surely the first thing, if, we, if, we, if you seem to be suggesting that, you, you, you know, if everything else is OK, we could just go ahead and do this. I'm just wondering how you are actually justifying the, the Well, there is no waiver. justification well, no, for this I case. I suppose what I'm looking fact. at... Sorry, what I was looking at, I suppose, are the challenges when it comes to manufacturing vaccines. I suppose if I can point to, I suppose, the European it, Union, which is, is what we've been challenging here. Is that not just a total red herring? Because we, the, 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 the first point is, is to, uh, you know, share the intellectual property. And I, well, I think at the moment as well, what we're seeing with the European Union is the export, exporting of vaccines. And I suppose Ireland is also contributing to COVAX as well. So you'll sort of see that that is how we're sort of, you know, engaging with the... the I suppose, with vaccines and sharing vaccines at a global level. Um, uh, well, I'll just bring Harry in on this. Harry, what, like, what is the uh, intellectual argument to support what the European Union stance on this is? The intellectual... Thank you for asking me about the intellectual argument. I knew you'd be the man to go <laughs> for the intellectual <laughs> argument, Harry. Yes, I mean, well, if if you look at any of the pronouncements that come out of the World Health Organization, they're talking about vaccine injustice. And uh, one of the reasons that's been posited for the widespread of Omicron in Southern African countries is the low level of uptake in uh, of vaccine or the low availability of vaccines in many countries, with the exception of South Africa, which has been quite uh, uh, good. And there has been an appeal uh, for uh big companies who, which have developed the vaccines to share not only uh, the, the vaccines, but also the information that will allow it to be uh, cheaply produced in, in, in developing countries. And the COVAX uh, has worked well, but it is limited. And it's limited because you're talking about a globe with a population of over 5 billion people. And you're talking about vaccines that are being made available uh, from the EU to, to just hundreds of, of millions of people. And there's a huge deficit uh, still there. So, I mean, the political argument does revolve around, you know, uh, what to what extent uh, should patents or trade secrets or intellectual property be shared? But I, I think the argument uh, in relation to a pandemic of this scale and of this longevity is, is, is very strong, that, that, that the information should be shared as widely as possible and uh, w- without a, a bill or a price attached. Harry I mean, is, to me, it's, it's right, obvious. Casey, this is, these are not normal times. This is a global pandemic. I mean, we have an absolute Is there a fear? And I, I'm honestly trying to get okay. my head around what, what, where if there might be some sort of a moral uh, or, or justifiable argument for this. Mm-hmm. Is there a fear that um, it will damage the capacity of these companies or blunt their ambition in terms of developing yeah. other vaccines if... They are denied the, you know, the full rights over the. But we have a situation currently. capacity of these vaccines. Okay, so we have is, a situation is, currently, is that, Katie, whereby no. uh, we have government TDs, TDs who are members of government parties, very cynically, in my opinion, putting motions down on the order paper in relation to the trips waiver that they know their government has no, absolutely no intention of supporting. We also equally have people who are actively preventing yep. the uh, the trips waiver going through, saying things like nobody is safe until everybody is safe. But I mean, that has to have some meaning yep. and it has to have a meaning beyond COVAX. So we yep. know that in order for this to be able to the vaccines to get mm-hmm. where they need to be. And we have heard time and time again that the this government in particular and others are putting all of their eggs in a vaccine basket well then we need to and the best way that we can protect ourselves is to protect everybody and just the to, best just way to, to do that is yeah. to allow people just, the intellectual property to make the vaccines that they need themselves and not to patronise people and yeah. say and countries and say look we don't think you're going to be able for it of course they are going to be able for and this in, in, nonsense and, and it's important to note that a huge amount of the funding that developed these vaccines is actually public funding and this is what has driven it it wasn't Pfizer who developed this it was Bio 
BioNTech with public funding from the mm. German government. It was Oxford, not AstraZeneca. You know, it has been public money that has driven this. And the same argument was made in terms of HIV drugs. They said, if we share, because it's one of the few times a TRIPS waiver has been used in the past, we may remember how the pandemic of HIV, or the, how the HIV continued for so long in Africa after drugs were available in the global north. And the TRIPS waiver finally allowed those to be shared. And in fact, it leads to innovation. Because you have more good minds, more scientists looking in different contexts. For example, the way that South Africa uh, were the first to identify variants. But they are good, And they didn't get much thanks for it. And they didn't get much thanks for it. But those are scientific minds who can be adding to our global response and to our global health frontline. <coughs> OK, I'll just give you one last no, chance to come in there and then we'll, no, we'll, we'll I would move just, on. No, I would totally agree. It is the investment in innovation and research is how we've actually seen a vaccine that's able to tackle this pandemic. I think that it's absolutely crucial that we have to invest in that. But we also have to understand the huge costs that are involved, I suppose, with developing vaccines. Yeah, but we've seen, I think, a lot of innovation as well in terms of this year and the year and a half in the acceleration of clinical trials that's brought us to the point of having vaccines available really quickly. So I think there is a lot of innovation that's been accelerated and is driving sort of uh, I suppose success in the vaccine well, side as well. D- here. Driving success. I mean, uh, Pfizer forecast to make thirty-six billion dollars in twenty twenty-one, and they expect to make thirty billion dollars in terms of revenue uh, next year. And that that that's such a colossal sum of money, and it's not matched yeah. by their rollout of vaccines yeah. to low and middle income. Uh, countries, they, they they have been slower in, in rolling them out to those countries than they have to And I think that's West. where, as you've said, Harry, I suppose that's where COVAX is going to be crucial, I suppose, in yes. ensuring that countries are exporting as, you know, are exporting and supporting the COVAX uh, sort of rollout of vaccines. Do you think that's going to be enough, do you? I th- we need more, but I think that is going to have yeah. to, that is a start and I think that's shown But if, co- but if COVAX and doesn't uh, work, will, will your well, government consider the TRIPS waiver? Will they consider taking actual taking action instead of just talking about it? Or will they at the very least consider stop saying we're not safe till everyone is safe? Because that has no meaning. We know that COVAX is not going to be enough. There has to be more done. And in order yeah. for us to be sure when we say nobody's safe till everybody's safe, that has to have some meaning. And, can't and just it does. Keep saying I mean, it. Louise, you're absolutely right. It, and I mean, the meaning it, it is... It doesn't for as long as, as, the, as the trip, as, as the trip and, waiver is blocked. OK, is okay we're going to... Exporting vaccines. Okay. OK, we're going to have to take a break. We'll be back after these. Text messages... Um, The nighttime economy uh, seriously affects taxi drivers, uh, says this taxi driver. Never mentioned now. I am out four hours now and I've made nine euro. Family income support should be made available to taxi drivers. That's from Dan in Waterford. And that is... uh, And actually, um, my colleague Darren O'Rourke did raise that directly with the Taoiseach today in the Dáil. And uh, he he got a very garbled answer, I have to say. We're, it's not clear at all if taxi drivers are covered, but it is very, very clear that their business is down and their business is absolutely suffering because of this, particularly because they make their money again at this time of the year, nighttime parties, all of that. And uh, the, the response from the Taoiseach today was actually, quite frankly, shocking. And if I was a taxi driver, I would be very concerned over what supports <coughs> are there available. Well, it, it, in fairness, I think that um, Heather Humphreys made a reference to taxi drivers when she was interviewed by Brian Dobson uh, was it yesterday at lunchtime yesterday sometime this week uh, and she did instance them uh, and did say that that, that some provision yeah. would be she made in relation to taxi drivers. So, no, he didn't seem to be aware well, of it today. It was, yeah. it was from what I'm from quite, from my notes. I mean, it's going to be available to self-employed workers such as taxi drivers if they lose their job as a result of the latest restrictions. So yeah. that's the latest. Again, the lose, their job, lose their job. Though is uh, that's it. You're okay, for four hours you know what? We, we, live. It's we, not, it's we not will have to return to this one but because it uh, we will wait until we have the full details of how that's going to pan out. I do want to touch though on the Climate Council report today. Uh, significant gap between climate action policy and climate action delivery by the government. That's what the Climate Change Advisory Council uh, said today. The annual review published today highlights delays in implementing the 2019 Climate Action Plan, missing the 2020 emissions targets, uh, reduction targets and the lack of a long-term emissions reduction strategy. (sighs) Uh, yes. I think, I mean, you know, we were t- talking about, you know, we're going from, according to Catherine Martin, we're going from a laggard to leader yes. in, in climate. Like that doesn't sound very, uh, you know, f- front of the well, pack there, does it? Well, all I can say is that uh, in my experience and in the Shannon, we've passed legislation um, on climate action and, you know, 
it is an acceleration. We have seen in the last year uh, just transition. I suppose the area that I'm from, Banislow, we're less than 10 kilometres from Shannon Bridge. You know, that was where there was a complete shutdown of Bordemona and Pete. Um, it was not expected that time. It was supposed to be another year or two years. You know, just but transition. we opened up Money Point and... Mm, but just, you know, just transition funds. I mean, what I'm just saying is that there is a transition and there is an impact, particularly in rural areas when it comes to this transition. Um, and I know, you know, everyone points fingers at times to, to, you know, to the farmers and everything else, but we're seeing our farmers leading on this. We're seeing lower emission slurry spreading. We're seeing newer technology. I would like to see more investment in technology about how we're going to support our farmers meet these targets. Um, but also, you know, I think we do need to understand that there are certain areas, and as the European Union Fund is dictating, that those areas that are impacted most socioeconomically have to be supported. That's what just transition means. But what we're seeing in Ireland here is that somehow it's going to be like, uh, <laughs> we all just have to, that's it, we all have to go and any regions that are particularly impacted with loss of jobs, loss of family income, you know, what are we going to do there? So I just, I do believe that there there is going to be there is an acceleration. We are leading on it. Our farmers are going to be leading on it. Uh, the, but, we're not, we're not uh, the chairperson of the Climate Change Advisory Council, Marie Donnelly, said that an analysis of the communication sector found that there was not a plan in place. There's no plan made available from the health sector and the area of gas and, and uh, electricity and gas networks had not com- completed its plans either. So from the health sector... plan, plan to fail. From the health sector that I suppose are dealing with one of the worst crises that we've seen in a lifetime. Um, we're, there I are think challenges some might suggest climate change might be right up there with... Of course, and I very much understand that. But I, I would say that within the Department of Health and the HSC, I mean, capacity, we're at maximum capacity in terms of delivering on the vaccination rollout scheme. But I would take into account that the Department of Health will have to have those targets submitted. Th- these plans are going to be reviewed, you know, by the group, by the independent okay. advisory group. Okay. Um, so it will be driving change. Alice yeah, so I think we're all passionate about a just transition, but the thing is that with a just transition, that means that it is uh, both fair and fast. So just transition does not mean you delay action. And unfortunately, Ireland has been delaying action. And we're in the position where we are one of the last in Europe, where we failed to meet our 2020 targets, a very modest 20% reduction that we had been meant to meet by 2020. We failed to meet that um, because... I think sometimes we, we think if we can tell a better story that that will improve things. But you can't negotiate or create a narrative out of climate change. It's real. It's science. The emissions are hard facts. Mm. What you do this year, next year, you don't, you know, having a good excuse for starting late means absolutely nothing when we talk about climate tipping but points. So let's be clear. Yeah. Things that are not done. The, the Climate Action Delivery Board, that's the board that's meant to coordinate across departments. It didn't meet in 2020. It, did, it was so, meant to meet quarterly and it didn't meet in 2020. The coastal change management strategy. And if we talk about, you know, the West Coast and others of Ireland. I think what was really refreshing, I think, in terms of Mary, um, uh, in terms of the, the, the chair when she spoke today, she was very clear. Uh, sometimes there's this narrative of the cost of climate action and can we gear ourselves up for the, doing climate action and how hard that will be. She was very clear. Climate change will be hard. Climate change impacts are going to be very significant and not only do we need to be taking far stronger action far earlier um, on climate mitigation, yes. but we need to be having adaptation funding. And, I'm, and no, there is funding that has been allocated, like we're seeing over 165 million for the National Development Plan. I mean, retrofitting. Sorry, just retrofitting, yeah. which is still piecemeal. And that was identified. Housing, housing is like one of the key areas, like the quality of housing and heating and everything. Like and retrofitting is a key part of the rollout of this plan. I, I know, but one of the problems again, and this is, a problem that the government has as a whole is that sometimes the idea is we have to come up with a business model for how it's going to make money for somebody first before we do it. And two areas, two areas that were identified as needing earlier action were on heating, were on transport. We know that the public transport, the big public transport well, projects have been postponed by well, a decade. But I, it was I, very I, clear I agree to argue we, need to front only, lane, we need to front well, load investment on that. All, all I can say is, all, coming from where I come from, Banlaslow, I'm absolutely delighted uh, this week to find out that we're now one of the routes on the Galway to Dublin uh, cycleway. So that there is an investment in infrastructure. Uh, no, there, is, there are plans there for are, infrastructure. There's a 50-bed ward block in Port Yonkla Hospital that is now going to the second stage. That's 50 beds, single beds in a hospital that's only yes. 13 Yes, yet at the same... That's the infrastructure that's been built. Yeah, nonetheless, that's that's infrastructure 
in Ballinasloe, but let's talk about the scale that we need and in the transformation yes, of, the the tra- of the scale that we need on climate. The fact that we made really good and elaborate excuses for a decade have left Ireland in the position where we are behind the curve. So we do need to front load. And something Ari Cassidy said is yes. we need to be, for example, taking money, at which we can get at 0% interest, bear in mind at the moment, from the EU in terms of rolling out more ambitious public transport. But what instead we're seeing is special pleading, special well, pleading from horticulture, tran- special well, pleading transport, from, from if diesel, I might, Alice Murray. special pleading okay, from digital centres. OK, I just want to let Louise oh, in and I'll let you back in. So uh, we, we do have to have a conversation in relation to, to data centres and I, I don't hear anything that fills me with confidence coming from the government, I'll be honest. But just to, to go back to the, the advisory council, I mean, one of the things, and this... It might seem like a small thing, but actually, I think it, uh, to me, it seemed, it, it, it's it's a very significant thing. Yet again, second year in a row, the minister has uh, has been criticised by the CCAC for failing to uh, prepare a just an annual transition statement. Now, again, these, this is you know a legal obligation that the minister has that he is choosing not to uh, not to do. So, if you're cherry picking in that way, you'd have to wonder how serious they are. And Alice Mary makes a very good point. You know, it seems to be that the the rush is always to find out how can we monetize this, how can we ensure that somebody can make a few bob out of this before we start pushing for it. In actual fact, it needs to be driven but, by government, but it won't be. But it is. Unless, it's in the program for government. We have the budget uh, been no. allocated. Okay, to and, public I, and I can and I can show and you Friday, many many programs Friday, for government uh, that 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 well, withered I on. The vine. Well, so, I hope everybody here is will, going to be putting in a submission you know, on the Connecting Ireland Rural Mobility okay. Plan, which so has a deadline this Friday. Let's, let's talk. That's public okay, transport. Let's talk you, about what you say. You say check against delivery. So there are two key targets missed by small enough targets, by the way, but two key reports missed. A just a, a transition statement not produced second year in a row. That tells me that the minister is prepared to pick and choose what it is that suits him to implement and doesn't suit him to implement. And that suggests to me that there is a lack of urgency. And that's what this report has found. I've, We're I'm, significantly off track. They're not my words. Okay, significantly well, I, off track. When, when the okay, minister I welcome came the work of the climate okay. advisory group here. I do welcome their work. And it shows that they're doing, they're doing the job. We do need to see action on a lot of these items. And I would support that. Um, but it is, it's also crucial to understand that there is investment, there is budget, and I would challenge some of the comments we met earlier because we have an allocation under the NDP and the budget for this year, particularly around public transport and infrastructure that will help us. But you uh, accept the criticism from the I accept that the group are doing as they should do. They're an independent advisory group that are holding us to account. And I understand that there are challenges can here, as, as has been mentioned, that we do need to see some action I, movement oh, on some of these areas. OK, no, I'm going to have to move on. Just um, to the, the very final thing, the, the very crucial point, if we forget everything else, they've mainly said that the climate action plan will not reach 51%. So I think that's the key standout for me. They've said 51% is not in our but, national climate plan. That to me says that the national climate plan needs to be resived, revised and that its targets well, need to be yeah. revised. Harry, it's it's oh, going yeah. to be very hard to revise it if they're not even meeting the targets that they've set for themselves uh, up to now, uh, Alice Mary. Uh, one of the things that stood out to me from the report from the Climate Change Advisory Committee was that uh, a lot of the measures that were announced in the much more modest 2019 plan have actually been delayed and not implemented. And you must remember, I mean, the, the, the difficulty with this is is that it's it's a huge transition and it's going to cost an estimated €125 billion euro plus over yeah. the next 10 years if, we're ha- if we have any hope of meeting our target. And it is going to, to involve sacrifices. Uh, yeah. People are going to be, have to be weaned off their addictions to their cars, for example, and weaned onto public transport and onto sustainable forms of transport. And that's a very, very hard sell. Since the pandemic, uh, the whole working from home phenomenon has been neutralised by a huge increase of traffic on the roads and our emissions from transport are going up uh, exponentially at present. Uh, The same thing is happening with agriculture. And I have no confidence that the measures announced in agriculture uh, will have any uh, impact on uh, emissions over the next couple of years. The three biggest parties, including Sinn Féin, have been in denial about this and have been in denial about this for over a decade. 
Well, we see even, I mean, when you, you speak of um, agriculture there as well, Harry, I mean, there are measures that, that have been put in place through the CAP reform as well, which is about bringing down the lower age of slaughter at a national level for animals. And that will decrease the amount of carbon emissions coming out of that sector. But, but, you, but the, you have a government which is advocating a move away from fertiliser on the one hand, and on the other hand is trying to get the exemption from the nitrate directive from, from Europe, which increases the use of fertiliser. You know, it's kind of running with the hair and we, chasing with the hounds. And again, as I was pointing out, I suppose, a little bit before about just transition, we have to understand that there is different types of land across the whole of Ireland. Um, when it comes to being able to deliver, we have to have, I suppose, investment in technology that's going to support farmers to be able to make a living from the land. We can't just say, that's it. You live in a limestone area. You know, you're not down in the southeast. Uh, somehow you have to make do and that you're going to be able to make a livelihood. We have to be able to support those farmers. Um, we have to take into account that not statistics show, Ashling, that a tiny number of farmers are responsible for um, the vast majority of fertiliser that's important. Yeah, in the country. southeast, actually. South and southeast. <laughs> well, I suppose what we have to look These at... These are dairy farmers. These are the yeah. big dairy farmers. So what we're going to be, I suppose, looking so at... So we are supporting those in that by going to Europe again and asking for an extension of that derogation. But we see, you know, each time we talk about farmers and I think to me, coming from a farming background, is that we need to see the leadership that farmers are showing as well. Farming families. I've been in Marts all across the West. I have listened to the concern and the worry about the future of these of, of farming families that are the backbone of our towns and villages. Where and how, you know, to have a livelihood in 10 and 20 years time. But they are making changes. We're looking at organic farming. We're looking at organics when it comes to our vegetables. We have one of the yeah. best you but, know, organic. But we're still looking for a derogation from the nitrates. Directive. And that as is, I mentioned, the just transition, even at a European Union level, is until 2027. So there has to be an acknowledgement that there are areas that will need support, but also that we're driving change. And that's really what we're seeing. We are seeing change well, happen. But we're waiting to see Ireland's transition statement and plan. We're waiting to see the territorial approach. So just transition is not just a phrase for government to use in terms of delays yeah. or excuses for sectors. It's an actual process and system with measurables that needs to be put in place and by mind was led by workers and by workers and by unions who in fact and civil society who pushed the just transition concept that is about ground up empowerment okay. what it's not about is big industries looking for exemptions and special treatment and there is large farmers as an issue data centres are an issue large scale peat okay. extractors that's who's getting special okay. treatment I'm going to have to, I'm going to, have to move on uh, because I do want to go to this uh, very big political story uh, that is happening across the pond okay. Uh, where, of course, Allegra Stratton has resigned as government advisor following an angry backlash over a video of herself and Number 10 staff joking about holding a Christmas party. This is uh, a year ago, last December. The video, which was obtained by ITV, showed the then Prime Minister's uh, press secretary days after Downing Street staff held a party laughing with colleagues over how to defend that party in a mocked-up press conference. Uh, Let's have a quick listen to a clip from that video, that leaked tape. Is cheese and wine all right? No. It was a business meeting. <laughs> <laughs> joking. This is recorded. His fictional party was a business meeting. And it was not socially distanced. Uh, so that was from the tape. And uh, funny as that was, a year on, not so funny. Um, this is Allegra Stratton resigning today. My remarks seemed to make light of the rules. That was never my intention. I will regret those remarks for the rest of my days and now for my profound apologies to all of you at home for them. I'm joined on the line now from London by Enda Brady of Sky News. Good evening, Minda. Hello, Katie. Good to speak to you again. Um, one head rolled uh, now, uh, but Enda, is Allegra Stratton's departure going to be enough to protect Boris Johnson? Look, I, I think the problem he has tonight now is that this whole situation, it's been rumbling on for seven days. It'll be back on the front pages in the morning here. It's not going away. And as he has looked at bringing in more restrictions in the past few hours, that whole incident has completely undermined public confidence. And I think he's really struggling. I think today has been one of the most difficult, damaging days for Boris Johnson's premiership since he took office. 
and he can't wait to get this moved. And uh, I do wonder about the timing of the restrictions and the press conference at six o'clock. You know, it was almost breakneck speed to kind of get something else out there to get this away from the front pages. Yeah, but I mean, I know that it was being characterised as the classic dead cat strategy to get this something, some diversionary uh, big issue out there to draw everyone's attention in another direction. But it was a really tricky one, though, wasn't it? Because... It was actually drawing attention to the very thing they were trying to divert attention away from and the sensitivity around asking people to, uh, you know, observe more restrictions after what they had learned had happened in Downing Street. Yeah, precisely. And I think the problem he has now is that, you know, telling people to not socialise last Christmas, not to see loved ones in hospital, not to attend funerals. I mean, there were so many restrictions here last year. And I remember December the 18th very well because it's my birthday and there was minus crack to be had anywhere. You know, you just weren't even allowed to have people in your own house. And I think for all the people who stuck by the rules and did the right thing to then hear that clip that you played, I, I, I think it's a real kick in the teeth, really, for people who play by the rules here. And now Boris Johnson is coming out and asking the British public to get back on board, more restrictions, you know, do as you're told, and hopefully we can ride out this new variant. Um, it, it remains to be seen, but I, I think one thing that has really punched through was Anton Deck having a pop at him last night on I'm a Celebrity, cracking gags. You know, that clip, their sketch last night where they made a joke about this and um, had a go at the Prime Minister almost, that has landed more political damage than any politician in Parliament, a leader of the opposition, any Prime Minister's questions. I think Anton Deck have punched through to the general public in a way that no politician has. Yeah, and of course, I mean... Anyone listening to this on this side of the water will be thinking of Golfgate and, uh, you know, it's been referred to online here a lot as Golfgate, the sequel. Uh, But the idea that he's still insisting that, uh, you know, we might have moved on a bit from it didn't happen to if it did happen, it followed the rules to I'm furious uh, that people were laughing about it. But the idea that, like, is there any traction at all for the notion that Boris Johnson was trying to sell today that he didn't know that this was happening in the place that he lives in. Well, look, first of all, let's give him the benefit of the doubt, but let's point out some facts here. A party in Downing Street, he has one baby. They live in a flat above the room where the party was supposed to have happened, if it did happen. I mean, join up all the dots. And I think the one question a lot of journalists would ask the Prime Minister and would want him to answer, nobody's asked him this yet to his face. Were you there? Yes or no? And I think that would be fascinating to hear how he defends that. But, you know, socialising last Christmas was completely not allowed here. There was no mixing of households. There was no venues open. There was nowhere to go. And I think it really just sticks in the craw for people here, Mm. having made all the sacrifices that they did and come so far to see that clip um, the tears were all well and good today, but I don't think they'll wash with the British public. And uh, and how, now we're all on board for more restrictions, how, at least until January. How much trouble is he in, and very very briefly? Look, I, I, it's not going to bring him down. I, I think he will try his best to ride it out, but make no mistake, it has chipped away at any moral authority he had left. OK, Enda Brady, and no doubt this one will run and run. We may be speaking to you again about it, but many thanks for joining thanks, us Kate. with that update tonight. Uh, we'll take our last break. The Late Debate with Katie Hannan on RTE Radio 1. And that's just about all we have time for tonight. Just the f- headlines from the Irish Examiner. Pfizer booster protects against Omicron. Bit of good news tonight. And uh, Cork Airport expects a return of transatlantic flights. Uh, there's a more local Cork story. Um, credits um, tonight. I want to thank all my guests for coming in. Thank you all for listening and thanks to the team. Stay tuned for Late Date with Carl Murray. But first, I'll hand you over to Joanne Cantwell on the sports desk.